Hey everybody, my name is Andrew Krause and I am one of the co-founders here at InventRight and I'm going to do, be doing a full hour of Q&A. If uh, not all of you, just one or two of you could type yes into the chat box just so I can make sure you guys can hear me. So I'll just wait for one or two people to type yes. There we go. Thank you, Diane. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Okay, cool. Um, so we're going to have fun today. I uh, had a long day, uh, but, you know, I, I always really get energized when I, when I do these. And once I get going, you guys know you can't shut me up. So um, you guys, looks like you have some great questions already. If you have some questions, type them into the, uh, so the questions box. We go to, go to webinars, the chat, and um, I'll get to as many as I can in an hour. Um, so Stephen and myself, we co-founded InventRight about almost 21 years ago now, and we've been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since uh, to license their products. We've had students in 65 countries, and we have students licensing and closing deals all the time. But more importantly, you know, we're about uh, mentoring and, and guiding you, giving you that real experience so that you can say, I get it, guys. I don't need you anymore and you can license products the rest of your life. So we like to think really high level that we're not just helping our students do deals, that we're helping you um, get those real life skills and real life experience so you can license products forever. Because uh, it's a really cool business model that you can do with a day job or a side business, um, something that you could do not do at all for a couple weeks or a couple months or even a year, nobody's going to yell at you saying, where's my paycheck? Where's my order? Um, so you can go in and out of it. However, I do find that, you know, spending a consistent amount of time every week, two to six hours every week, this is what we tell our students, um, working on your projects is what's going to get you there. Um, you can do it in fits and starts, but it doesn't really work very well. I think it's better to be consistent, make it part of your, your uh, weekly routine. Um, that's what we have our students do, and um, I see a few questions in here that I think I'll probably say the same thing later. Anyway, so let's let's get going, guys. Um, uh, Jennifer, hi, Andrew. Love these Monday nights. Just want to say thank you for uh, being so committed to the inventor community and giving back. Uh, my question is a... My, your question, th first of all, thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate it. Um, is a PPA considered protected? Okay, so a, a PPA is a provisional patent application. So it's not a patent. And patent attorneys are very anal retentive about this. And I think partially it, it's justified. So there's no such thing as a provisional patent. Patent attorneys will tell you it's a provisional patent application. Okay, so you have to file a you can file a provisional patent, and if you file a sorry, I even used it myself, didn't I? If you file a provisional patent application, it gives you a whole year to see if there's any interest, and it can legally let you say patent pending. So when you send some marketing materials, you can put patent pending. It is not a patent. If you don't upgrade that provisional to a patent, you do not have that protection. Now, what it's doing is it's protecting you. Let's say I filed a provisional patent today. I'd be, I would have the ability to say patent pending, but I can't go around beating people over the head going, you're violating my patent because it's not a patent because it's automatically granted. So when you file a provisional patent, it's automatically granted. You could scribble on a piece of paper with crayon as long as you paid the fee and you filled out the information about your address and everything correctly you get it. So you're always granted the provisional because they don't review it at the patent office. Okay. And we have some software called SmartRP. We help <clears throat> that helps our students and non-students file a provisional patent application. Then you just pay the $75 patent office fee. So what the way we utilize a provisional patent is it gives you a year to see if there's interest which is a great tool. It's amazing for 75 bucks, you get a year to see if it's interesting. You can legally say patent pending. If they ask you as a provisional, you should say it's a provisional, of course. Most of the time they don't ask and just move forward. It's about the product. It's not all about the patent most of the time. Um, but if you don't later, before that year is up, file a full utility patent and reference that provisional, then you don't get that protection from what's in that provisional from that date, okay? 
So that's important. It's important to know that, and, and even then, let's say you file a full utility patent. It takes one to three years for the patent office to get back to you and your attorney for a full utility patent to then do what's called office actions, which I like to, in a crude way of explaining it, it's an argument between your patent attorney and the patent examiner at the patent office. So even if you file your patent, utility patent, you still don't have a patent. It takes another one to three years for them to get back to you at the office actions, and then, then the patent is granted. And then you'll have protection from what's in your provisional from that date, then and only then. Until then, it's perceived protection. And we talk a lot about this, and perceived protection in most industries is fantastic. And, and it's enough. To sit around to file a full utility patent and wait one to three years for it to issue and then approach companies is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And that's what a lot of inventors do because they don't know any better, not because now you do, you know, because product might not even be relevant anymore. I mean, some products may still be relevant, but a lot of products might not be relevant three years from now. So to spend 10 grand on a patent, wait three years for it to issue because and some inventors and some patent attorneys even tell inventors this, like God knows why. But um, you, oh, you should wait till it issues. No, hell no. Patent pending status is fine. And a provisional patent is patent pending status as well as a full utility patent that hasn't been issued. They're both patent pending, technically. So, um, so, uh, so Jennifer, hopefully that was, that was helpful. It was very detailed. I don't know if I've gone to that much detail before about that. So hopefully that benefited you and everybody else. Um, So, Jennifer, I'm going to answer some other questions, then I'll come back. Or I'm just going to answer it in order because it's easier, so don't forget who I missed. You, you wrote, the United States Postal Service states unsolicited proposals are accepted for initial evaluation only when they do not contain confidential or proprietary information not protected by copyright or patent. If you have a product that you want to license to the Postal Service, you're probably not going to approach them. You'd approach a vendor that's selling letter boxes or carriers or things to the postal service you probably because they're probably not going to license something from you they're going to buy it from a vendor that sells to them so you don't license to the post office more than likely you're going to license to a vendor that sells to the post office i don't know your invention so i don't know 100 for sure but i give you 98 percent chance that will be applicable to your product so hopefully that answers your question um Matt says, and by the way, when you type your questions, type your first name in so that I can address you by your first name rather than by your screen handle, which is a little awkward sometimes. Um, Matt says, hi, Andrew. So I found one product that has the same benefit as mine, but it's constructed of different materials and functions differently. I'm looking at the patent for it, and it's in the first claim, and throughout it refers to the product being a circle shape. In addition to mine, being made and functioning differently. It also has a square shape. It, it is also square shape, not circle. So, so there, so I'm, so I'm taking theirs into account as prior art. But my question is, are they locked into the circle shape and construction material as far as what they can protect if no other avenues are listed? So um, you guys are right. Reading patents is not fun. Yeah, it sucks. It's like I, I, you have to read the claim sometimes like three times. Like what? What did they say? What did that mean? And then you read the claim again. Hopefully it's only two or three sentences. You're like, I still don't get it. Read it again and again. I always tell people you should read claims like you have obsessive compulsive disorder and you should read it like four, five, six, seven times. And then like maybe after the fifth time, you're like, oh, they're just protecting that hook. Or in your case, Matt, oh, it's just if it's a circle. They were so specific. And so a patent is not a patent is not a patent. And I, I sound like a crazy person talking like that. Figure it out. I talk like that. If any of you dozing off, you'd be like, what is he, what is he saying? We need to pay attention. But um, you can look at a picture in a patent that's been granted. You can look at all, but you got to read through the claims. Don't make assumptions on what's protected. And uh, you'd be surprised how often the protection they've gotten is extremely weak. So first off, Matt, the fact that you have somebody else that's selling a different product with the same benefit 
Fantastic. That's a big two thumbs up. That means there's a market for it. Now, you didn't say they were selling it. You said they got a patent. But if it's in the marketplace, I think you did. Did you? It doesn't matter. But let's say let's say it's in the marketplace. That's fantastic. It proves there's a market. And yeah, you have a different way of solving it. Maybe it's not even better. Maybe it's just different. Totally okay. So you need to read through the claims. And if they're specifying that this thing needs to be just a circle and they got that narrow of a coverage with patents. You have narrow, very narrow coverage or very broad coverage with the way you word it. So you have to look at the way they're wording it and see what they're granted. And patent examiners will grant your patent attorney and you patents all the time if it's really narrow, but it's not protecting them for, for, for much. There's also a lot of patent attorneys out there that are okay with getting their clients weak claims, you know, and, not all patent attorneys are ethical. So some of them will just, oh, well, I know the patent examiner is going to grant them this, so I'll try for that. So then they go, well, we got a patent, and you have weak claims that you can get right around. I don't think that's cool. And if they are weak, the patent attorney should say, look, we couldn't get this, but we got this. And it wasn't as strong of a claim. you know. And, and, and most patent attorneys are pretty cool, but what when... When I've heard statistics up to 80%, I think that's an exaggeration from intellectual property experts, patent experts, up to 80% of patents are weak to junk. There's a reason for that. The patent attorneys are partially at fault there. And the inventors are at fault going, well, I just need a patent. And the patent attorneys are, we got you a patent. It's like, got you a weak ass patent with narrow claims that anybody can get around. What kind of patent is that? So, but, Matt, because a lot of patents are weak, that's why you should look at it and go, geez, I, they're just protecting if that's a circle. Okay. I, that doesn't cause a problem for me. Oh, they got that. Oh, that doesn't cause a problem for me. Oh, that claim over there. Oh, okay. Well, I'm doing it a different way too. That doesn't cause a problem for me. And if you're not violating any of the claims, you know, go for it. You know, and anything I shared tonight is not legal advice. Please seek the services of an attorney before moving forward with anything. Um, this is just for experience, for, for learning purposes. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, Jason, I get emails from people licensing products all the time from InventRight. I'm finding it's not so easy to license a product is it next to impossible license without becoming an InventRight member? No, I don't think it's impossible, but I do think that, I don't think, I know. Um, I'll tell you a little bit of little story, and uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it short because I want to answer as many of your questions as possible. When Steve and I first started InventRight, we, we didn't do coaching. We did live seminars, and it was all day Saturday, all day Sunday, and it was live. Um, and we would have, I don't know, anywhere from 20 to 120 people show up. We even let people come back for free. And people are praising us. They're like, oh, you guys are so great. I finally get this. You know, nobody's teaching this stuff. I understand licensing now. So I started checking in with people. And people weren't doing the work, and they definitely weren't doing deals. And I said to our, my business partner, Stephen, I said, Stephen, I'm not cool at this. People think we're fantastic. They tell us what we're teaching is great, but it's not – people aren't making the effort to get the real-life experience, and they're not getting out there, and they're not closing deals. So I said, Stephen, I said, I want to be our first coach. I want to – so I was our first coach. You know, Back then, it wasn't 26 people in the company. It was Stephen, myself, and his assistant, James. That was it. And I did – I did uh, bookkeeping, I did um, sales, I did customer service, and I did coaching, and I did, I did it all pretty much. Um, and so I said, I'm not, I'm not cool with that, Stephen. I think that uh, we, we want people to have success, not just say they understand the material, because all, all these inventors, they want to get their products to market. Um, so I started doing the coaching. That's when things started to pop. And it's a lot more work than doing a weekend seminar. Gosh, it's way more work. It's crazy work. But it's the only thing that works. So um, are our students licensing at an exponentially higher rate than our fans? 
yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all because they're having somebody hold their hand. The inventor's like, oh, I'm going to do it like this. And the coach is like, no, don't do that at all. Do it like this, you know, but they don't even have to correct them on those things because when you're a student, the, the coach is looking at your product for this product. This is the right next thing to do. They're guiding you with your specific product in mind and they're giving you a certainty that you're doing the right thing. So Jason, I absolutely do think that you can license without our coaching but is it going to be harder without somebody holding your hand that's been through it without our negotiation coach, Paul, and our whole team? Um, yeah, it's going to be harder, but I think it's possible. Um, you're, probably, you're probably doing some things wrong. I mean, like um, I got a sell sheet from somebody just Friday, and it was terrible. It was absolutely horrendous. But when the inventor told me about their product, I'm like, oh, that's a really cool product. But the sell sheet was, made no sense. It, it didn't, it wouldn't intrigue anybody to want to call back. If I was a marketing manager, I would have just ignored it. Um, you know, so sell sheets aren't good. Another major mistake non-invent right students make is they make a really anemic list of potential licensees, like two or three when they should have 20 or 30. I mean, if you only have 12, you only have 12, fine, but you should shoot for 20 or 30. And, and uh, so they have a very small list of potential licensees. Um, other mistakes, going out and blowing a bunch of money on a provisional patent, not necessary. You don't need to go out and spend 1200 on a provisional patent, uh, you know, when you can file it yourself for 75 bucks. Um, a lot of inventors, you know, before they come to us, they get a false sense of moving forward by spending money, spending money on prototypes and spending money on patents. And it is truly a false sense of moving forward because and I get people that are interested in the program. They say, oh, I'm really far along. I'm like, what have you done? Well, I've, I, I made a prototype and I filed a patent. I'm like, what makes you think you're really far along, the fact that you did those things? Um, first off, you shouldn't have filed a patent because it wasn't necessary. Okay, you did that, fine. But next time, don't do that. It's not necessary. You can file a provisional and get a whole year to fish off the pier and see if anybody's interested. Why would you spend 10 grand on a patent? Um, and then they, they think they're going to be selling their prototype somehow. They got no marketing materials. Um, I'm like, no, you're not going to sell your prototype or just show them your prototype or um, that's not how it works. So, um, yeah, so I do think it can be done, Jason. Um, uh, Jason says, one more question from Jason. What do you think is the best DRTV company to contact first? Do Top Dog Direct, Stephen and I interviewed them recently. What was that? Was on th last Thursday? I forget, I'm losing track. Uh, with help for tooling and manufacturing as well as things confidential. When you submit, submit to them, they have no terms and conditions. Yeah, most, I mean, if you filed your provisional patent, why do you need terms and conditions? You know, I mean, you filed your provisional, you go ahead and show it to them. It's your protection. Um, but, uh, yeah, they seem like they seem like good folks. Um, I I I'd say approach all the DRTV companies, and then you know a lot of times when you're working on an infomercial type product, it's also applicable to like a kitchen gadget company or another type of company that sells standard consumer products in stores. It's not if if they can't understand what your product is without the video. If 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 you can't if the company can't make the packaging understandable when you're walking down the store shelf, store aisle at Walmart and you see the package, well, then it's not going to be able to be sold at retail without an infomercial. Infomercials, you're able to sell stuff that most people go, what is that? I don't get it. But because they saw the infomercial, it will sell at retail. So, But you might have two lists. You might have your list of infomercial companies, and then also a list of standard consumer product companies that can license it as well. Um, and I always recommend to do both if it makes sense for your product. Um, so Jason, I don't know. Yeah, I do Top Dog first, maybe All Star after that, and then go down the list um, and reach out to all of them. Uh, let's see. Linda Marie, we've been contracted... Yeah. Well, Linda, I, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go there. 
AJ, where does the royalty percentage normally come from? The retail price or the manufacturing price? Um, it comes from the wholesale price. Neither of those actually. You didn't get either of them wrong, AJ, but you asked a great question. So I'm gonna give you the answer. It's the wholesale price. You can you can base it off whatever you want. Retail would be impossible, right? Because so many you have sales all the time. There would be impossible to track that. Um, you could base it on the manufacturing cost, but you're really basing it on the wholesale price. So it's the price the manufacturer sells to the retailer for. So if they're selling to Walmart, it's the price they're selling to Walmart for because it's easily to track easy to track. Because you can see, like if you there's always an audit clause in the agreement and um, in the licensing agreement. And if you need to audit them, it's very easy to track what they sold to Walmart and Target and whoever else for. So the royalty rate should always be based on the wholesale price, which quite often is around half of the retail price. If it's if it's retailing for $9.85, it's probably wholesaling for around five usually. And it can vary. Um, but I've seen people do other creative stuff, but I would say 95% of the time, deals we do with our students or help them do, um, it's uh, it's based on the wholesale price. Uh, AJ also said, should your licensee provide you with sale numbers? How do you make sure they tell you the truth? You can kind of gauge it. You can talk to salespeople at their company too. Don't be shy about that. And go, okay, they're in this many stores. If it doesn't sell one unit per week per store, the store is pulling it anyway. If, they, if it's not selling. So you can kind of look at how many stores, you can kind of guesstimate. And, and you, you know, you might not know for sure because you don't want to put the screws to them and audit them because in most audit clauses, the way we do it is if it's not off by more than 5%, you pay for the audit. That's only fair. But if it is off more than 5%, then they pay for the audit. But that's not a good thing to be randomly doing to potential licensees. It's better to talk to some salespeople, look how many stores they're in, get information about how many stores they're in. And yes, they, they're going to give you those sales numbers because they have to calculate your royalty. So if you feel like they're off, you can you can talk to them. Sometimes it's just a mistake. Um, Stephen had, um, he licensed that, that's our other co-founder. He licensed the Michael Jordan wall ball which was a, a Nerf basketball game. You stick it on your door and you throw the Nerf basketball on the back of the backboard is something you put in the door in your, in your room if you're a kid or an adult. Um, and you throw the Nerf, the Nerf basketball and the backboard's actually Michael Jordan. Well, they, they did one and they apparently licensed it out um, or something happened where it ended up in cereal. And Stephen was just walking down the aisle one day and he, cause he likes looking at, um, this is back in the day, at cereal packages because you have to be really clever to get things down to a lower price. And he saw Michael Jordan and one arm just didn't know what the other arm was doing. He really didn't think they did it on purpose. Sometimes um, I've seen this happen before. It was really minor. A company will get bought out by a bigger company and the bigger company doesn't know about the agreement, didn't get informed about it. And then the inventor's like, where's my royalties? And they're like, oh, well, sorry, we didn't, they didn't let us know. It was, it's not a big deal. So all the instances I've seen of it, um, it was, it was just a mistake. Um, let's see. Uh, David says, uh, hi, Andrew, can I license food and beverage products or is it or is it not possible to license in the food and beverage industry? Yeah, you can license in food and beverage. Um, the the really the mega corporations there are kind of tough. You know the crafts of the world. You're probably more than likely to do a deal with a small er company, but it doesn't have to be a small company, but a small er company um, than like a craft or something like that. They're just too damn big. Um, but you can license food and beverage. Um, I'd say the more the niche is kind of uh, the niche things are a little bit easier to main, main, mainstream. It can be a little bit more difficult because the size of those companies are difficult and intellectual property, any sort of patentability around it can be difficult sometimes too. But if all the, if everything kind of lines up, you can, you can do it. Um, let's see what else we got here. Uh, David also, well, got a lot of questions, Dave, about different industries. Can you license in the cosmetics and perfume products industry? That's been a great industry for quite some time. 
Um, now, a, a professional did correct me, though, recently on this. So I'm always, it, things are always changing. There was a period of time there, and I think it's still somewhat the case, where there was just a lot of young upstart companies. You know, before it was like the major players, um, you know, L'Oreal and whoever in, in, in makeup and perfume and stuff. And um, it was kind of hard. And then there was all these little upstarts which take care of different makeup niches, whether it's for ethnic makeup or for different purposes or different age groups or different things like that. And it was really nice to see that um, creativity in so many companies. But now somebody that was an expert in that industry corrected me recently. And I said, no, it's great. You got so many different companies. And I personally still think that's the case and they do as well. But their point was, yeah, Andrew, but a lot of those smaller companies are now getting swallowed up by the bigger companies. Um, but I have found uh, quite a few of our students have been able to get into the big companies and they talk to them just fine. So they're not like standoffish. So I think it's a great category, uh, cosmetics and, and perfume uh, to work in, definitely. Uh, let's see. Chase, can I add multiple designs in my PPA if they look completely different, but all of the same purpose? Absolutely. All those variations you can include in your PPA, Chase. Absolutely. Um, AJ, if my product is, is an added feature to an existing product and it changes the design, should I file a design patent instead of utility? I, I can't answer that question, AJ, without knowing what the product is. Most of the time, design patents um, are not useful because just the way something looks, not the way something functions. But sometimes they can be very cleverly used. But there is no provisional design patent. There's only a utility patent. Um, and then which there's the provisional is for a utility provisional patent. There is no provisional design patent. So if you file a design patent, it's going to cost you at least $1,500. It's not something you can do yourself because you have to do very specific drawings. Um, so without seeing your product, there's no way I could say, AJ. But most of the time, design patent won't be applicable. But you're saying it's an added feature to an existing product. Well, then patent the functionality of the improvement. If, if you're adding something to the existing product, I'm certainly hopeful that it's, it's um, improving it in some way. So talk about what's the benefit of that? What's the utility, the functionality of that new improvement? So I don't know who told you you couldn't get a, a design. I'm not saying one way or another because I don't know what your idea is. But hopefully that was helpful to everybody. Um, Jeff says, hi, Andrew. How much royalty should I expect to spend to license a name from Disney or other big entertainment company? I mean, the way you're asking it is awkward, but I'm, so I'm going to rephrase it, maybe how what I think you're really asking, and then maybe not what you're asking, but it'll be a great answer. So how much royalty should I expect to spend? I don't know why you would say you would spend your royalty, but I think I know what you're saying. To license a name from Disney or other big entertainment companies. So I think what you're saying, Jeff, is if I get a Disney logo on here or um, uh, Major League, you know, baseball or whatever it is on my product too. I think what you're saying is uh, we're going to have to pay a royalty to them for the name. So let's say Disney. Um, let's say my daughter's really into, um, why am I forgetting the name of it now? Uh, oh, Descendants is the, is the show she's really into now. So if you want to license from Disney Descendants, you know, and that needs to go on the hat or the product you're selling, whatever product it is. Yeah. The, and most of the time when it's Disney or an entertainment company, with Disney, they don't make much of anything. So all the, like, a lot of the products you see that say Disney, they're not Disney's product. Somebody else manufactured it, and then they're paying Disney a royalty to put Mickey Mouse or something on that product. And they got permission from Disney. They're not doing any of that with permission for Disney. So if your product needs to have Mickey Mouse on it, plus you got the invention. So now it's a double royalty, you know. So that company needs to pay Disney for Mickey Mouse and need to pay you for your invention. So if what you're saying is, what should I expect? I mean, quite often it could be a split. You know, um, if you're 
but you could pay a higher royalty. So a common royalty for a lot of students is 5%. It could be eight or it could be 10 or it could be six or it could be three, you know, but the most common is five. So let's say you take a hit and you're willing to take four and then they pay Disney four and now they're paying a total of 8% royalty, four to Disney, four to you. Hey, you're going to sell all that much more. I'd happily give up one uh, royalty percentage because they're going to sell so much more because it has Mickey Mouse on it. So that's, don't know if that's specifically what you're asking, but um, it was a good, good question and answer, I think. <laughs> um, let's see. Rainflake, hey, good to see you, Andrews. Good to see you too. I remember your handle well. Um, Victor says, can you talk more about Smart IP and about how it works? Yeah, it's just a software we created with patent attorney Jane Quinn. You can get it on inventright.com, inventrighth.com, and it walks you through writing a provisional patent, and then it poops out a PDF that you can send to the patent office. Yeah, I'm being silly there. But it poops out a PDF, and then you, you can submit that to the patent office and as a provisional patent. It's just that simple. Um, one thing that I'll give you a tip that's not in there is that, and I've given this tip before, guys, that the 80% of filing a good provisional patent is just being an inventor, 80% of it. Thinking about the workarounds, variations, improvements, and including them in the provisional patent. So most inventors, after they've been thinking about something for a while, they're like, after a while, you were in brainstorming phase, but you get to a stage, you're like, this is what it is, this is what it is, this is what it is. You need to get out of that you know, you might be, maybe you've been thinking about this idea for a year and you thought about it a lot at the beginning, but now you don't feel like you need to think about it anymore. You're not, I know what it needs to be. And that's fine. And your marketing materials, you put that in there. But um, when it, when it comes to writing your provisional, you got to put your feet up on the desk and go, uh, how am I going to knock myself off? You know? And so you want to think about all the variations that are 90% as good, 80% as good waste of time to throw something half as good in there. That's just a waste of your time. That's not competition. Or maybe it's just as good, but not the version you're pitching. So 80% of filing good provisional is including those variations, workarounds, improvements. Most inventors don't do that. And then the smart IP software will help you with the rest, kind of the way to word it, and things like that. Um, let's see what else we got. Uh, Matt says, from the question above, yes, they're selling the product. Okay, it's not. So, Matt, it, was, it wasn't just a patent, but they're actually selling the product. So, yeah, take a thorough look at their at their uh, patent. And, you know, a lot, most, the vast majority of the time, you get right around it. Then you guys are like, wait a minute, Andrew, so that means people can get around me? No, not if you thought about the variations, workarounds, improvements. But remember I just said two seconds ago, most people don't do that. Most companies don't do that. Patent attorneys don't do that. Inventors don't do that. And that's why most patents are weak to junk. When I say most, a lot. Too many. Too many are weak to junk. So, yeah, get around them. And then when you file your provisional, think about those variations. And people go, damn, he's covered it. I can't get around him. Um, don't get obsessive about that because if you don't show it to any companies, you know, really, if I had to choose somebody doing a poor provisional or a poor sell sheet, I'd pick a poor provisional every time. Because they don't even want to see your provisional if they think the idea doesn't make any sense. So you got to do a good marketing piece. But they're not related. Do a good job of both. You know, I'm just trying to make a point there. Uh, thank you, Andrew. And I, I love this class, Su Suzanne. Uh, Suzanne, question, do you have a list of attorneys that you and Stephen like and would recommend? Um, well, here's the question. Why do you need an attorney? So, yes, we do actually have an inventor-friendly list of attorneys on our website. So if you go to um, inventright.com, you can find that on our website. But why do you need an attorney? You can file a provisional by yourself. Now, if you get interest from a company and – you, you can get them to give you the money to then give that to your attorney. They file a patent and they'll reference the provisional. So at that point, it makes perfect sense to get an attorney. You filed a provisional, you got interest from a company, you did a deal with them, and part of doing the deal is that you're going to get the full patent. That makes sense at that point to get a provisional, uh, to get a patent. Absolutely. 
Um, with the licensing attorney, the people that write licensing contracts, different kind of attorney now. Patent attorney, licensing attorney, not the same thing. Patent attorney writes patents. Licensing attorneys just do licensing contracts. I wouldn't go to a licensing attorney. I would go to us. We're way more likely to help you close a deal. Licensing attorneys are notorious for nitpicking deals to death to get more billable hours. Before you know it, they pissed off the company. The deal's dead, and they still send you a bill. And so our negotiation coach, Paul, is much better at guiding our students to do deals. And then you, once you have that experience, you can do deals yourself, and you can get deals to 95% done. We do always tell our students when a deal's 95% done before – you sign it, always have an attorney review it. But if you can get there and you can get deals to 95% done, wouldn't that be fantastic? You know, but the first time is too hard to do that yourself. It really is. So don't ever think you're approaching a patent attorney about a licensing agreement. It doesn't, I don't care if they say they've done one before. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. They write patents. They, if they do license, oh, how many have you done? Well, I don't know. I did two last year. Hell no. That's not what they do. They're not, they're a patent attorney. Do not ask your patent attorney to write a licensing contract. It's all wrong. Don't even get a licensing attorney to help you with it, except to dot the I's and cross the T's after everything is pretty much finished out. Um, so, uh, but if you don't have us to help you with that, you got to find somebody. But I haven't found licensing attorneys to be um, good at helping people close deals. There's a lot of back and forth that has nothing to do with the contract. You know, when you get to the contract, I'm, they're like, I'm fighting for you. And it's like, no, you're killing the deal for me. Don't do that. Um, so be very careful about that. Um, but yeah, you can go, and we do have a list of inventor-friendly patent attorneys on our website. And it's pretty cool. We, we I spent a bunch of time calling folks to see if they were uh, good folks, and we made that list up. And um, so it was pretty, pretty cool that we did that. Let's see what else we got. Uh, Dong Guo. Hi, Andrew. Good to see you every Monday. Thank you for your time. You help, you help everyone a lot. My question is, can we get free access to those companies that need inventors lists? So in other words, the company's looking for ideas. When we guide our students, we tell them you don't need that list because when you know how to license things, you will you can you need to make your list from scratch. So when our students come on board, like oh, I'm going to go to that list, the co first thing the coach will say is, "No, you're not. You're going to use that as a supplement afterwards." But we're going to take a look at your product, and I'm going to guide you to make the perfect list for your product. It's a methodology, a technique, whatever you want to call it. You need to know how to make your list of companies for any project you ever come up with. That way you're not relying on our stupid list. Now, after you do that, you've made your list, you followed your coach's directions, they've confirmed it, looks great. Okay, then you can use our list if you're a student of ours as a supplement and go, okay, is there somebody I missed? That's fine. But all, all the list is is a bunch of companies that we call and said, are you or aren't you open? Yes or no? It's a one or a zero, yes or no? And if they said yes, great, we add them to that list. If they said no, we don't add them to the list. There's no names or contact information or things like that. So the, the thought that you need somebody to give you this magical list is garbage. You don't need that. You need to become empowered to know how to make your list. It's one of the easier parts in the process. It's fairly time-consuming, but you need to know how to do that. Invention promotion companies cater and, and uh, to this misbelief. They go, oh, well, we, we've been doing this forever. We have all the contacts. We'll do it for you. It's BS. It, it really is. So um, Dong Go Guo, uh, don't feel like somebody needs to give you a list. And it's actually more time-consuming to make that list than just to make your list from scratch. Because let's say you have a kitchen gadget, and there's a category. It's like kitchen, and there's 600 companies there. You, If you did it right, you don't like blast 600 companies. Um, you you want to look at every company's product line. Now you're looking at 600 companies' product lines. It's very time-consuming. If you do it the way that we teach, you'll know that they're qualified and it's going to be faster, actually. So I think it's fine that people use our list as a supplement, but it's never the main way to make a list. And no, you, you need to be a student to get access to that. Um, let's see. Great questions, guys.
Okay, Jim, I'm I'm not I, I I'm thinking you're being silly there. Um, so let's see if I can find. God, now I lost it. Yeah, I'm not buying it, Jim. If you want to reach out to me, but Jim's like, I thank you for your videos. I was able to license my product in a matter of days. And was able to get a 17% royalty on the wholesale for my invention. Yeah, I, I, I don't know about that, Jim. And by the way, anybody that, you know, this is not a place to solicit. I mean, another person saying on here that they were representing inventors. I, I, I'm going to tell you guys, I've never met an inventor in 21 years of been doing event right that had an invention promotion company or an agent license a product for them in 21 years, but every day or every other day, I talk to somebody that's been taken for usually 10 or 12 grand. Sometimes it's three grand. So, um, you know, that's great if you think you were able to do that, but um, reach out to me. I'd love to hear more about it, but um, nothing happens in a matter of days. So I'm assuming you're being silly, Jim. Licensing doesn't happen that quickly ever. Nobody licenses anything in a matter of days, nobody. And I doubt that you did that. But if you want to prove me wrong, you know, feel free to reach out to me. Um, let's see. You can email me at Andrew at InventRight. Say, hey, I was the guy on there that said I licensed in a matter of days. Um, and guys, this is not, if any of anybody out there, this is a, a, a free forum. If anybody's trying to solicit, not appropriate. I'm not saying you guys are doing that, but I'm just giving you a heads up. That's not okay. Um, Uh, okay, Loco, John, uh, nickname Loco Beats. Uh, that's kind of a cool handle. Uh, hey, Andrew, my question is this. I have an invention being prototyped at the moment with the intent to secure uh, with a PPA ASCP. Great. I realize there can be two variations. I should, should I protect both? Yeah, you should protect both in the PPA, but with the prototype, I probably just move forward on the one that you think is most viable and show them that version, you know. Um, so that's what I would do. I would definitely write up both in your provisional patent. Absolutely. Maybe if there's two other versions too. Absolutely. That. Th this is the reason why most patents are weak to junk because the inventor fails to do that. Every inventor should always do that every time when they file a patent or a provisional. Now. Vendors are new to the game. You think patent attorneys would know better, but then the patent attorney, they should be there to say, oh, Bob, you know, uh, yeah, this is, looks great, but can you give me all the variations, workarounds, improvements? You're the inventor. Inventors falsely believe that's the patent attorney's job. It's totally 100% not their job to come up. They're not inventors. They're not to come up with every variation. They are to be wordsmiths to try to protect all the angles, but they're, they're not as creative as you. So you, so that's, but that's on them. They should, to me, this is my personal bias. It's the inventor's fault for not telling the patent attorney, look, here's all my variations, workarounds, improvements, the other variations you need to include. And that's the patent attorney's fault for not putting that on the inventor. But I'll be honest with you, a lot of times they just want to get the inventor signed up. The inventor's like, why are you making me do that? That's your job. You do that. And they, and they don't, and maybe a couple of inventors have said that before and they don't want to deal with that blowback and they don't want to lose the sale, right? Because they're trying to get this person signed up. So they take the garbage the inventor gives them and garbage in, garbage out. And it's, it's a travesty. It really is um, that, that patent attorneys, I'm going to blame patent attorneys, but I'm blame you guys too. You didn't know though. You're new to it. The patent attorneys doing patents all day long. So I think they're more at fault, but really both the inventor. And now that you know that, you know, you won't make that mistake. A lot of, like a lot of other inventors do. Um, uh, okay. Upscale lures. What, what do you do to get a company to look at your sell sheet after they said they're unable to accept outside product submissions because they want to protect their own interests. Well, the, the question is, is that something the gatekeeper said? Is that a marketing manager said? You know, if, if just the gatekeeper said that, that picked up the phone, uh, I might reach out to a marketing manager on LinkedIn, see if they say the same thing. And, you know, two, three people in the company all say the same thing. Okay, they're closed. You're just done with that company. That's okay. 
it's 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 more an anomaly it's not the norm it's it's the exception these days it really is so um and if they're a really really small company well then you you know okay that was the ceo that told me that but uh, analyze um upscale lures like who told me that because i've had people um that said oh the gatekeeper said they weren't open it they re reached out to ideas they reached out to a marketing manager and they're like yeah send it on over and then other companies you could reach out to eight people in the company everyone will give you this this template and answer you know because you know their attorney got to them and they're and you're like okay that's that's a brick wall but one person don't assume that's a brick wall you're just being polite again saying are you open to submissions so i, I might uh, approach one more um person within the company and see if they say the same thing uh let's see uh yeah, I don't know how to pronounce this handle. Yes, itchy, itchy, itchy finger, I guess. Uh, it's such a simple idea that I'm so scared that anybody would just take it and run with the ball because I'm just a small guy here in Lubbock, Texas. What should I do? So, you know, yeah, and that's what's fantastic. The patent office gives us something fantastic called a provisional patent application. So you can file one. Itchy finger is your handle um, for $75. And that's your protection. You could put patent pending on the sell sheet. Just because it's a simple idea doesn't mean it's not patentable. And just even if it's not patentable, our students license stuff that's not patentable all the time. Companies like, yeah, we don't care about patents. So even if you're not sure, file the provisional patent for 75 bucks. And if they are interested and they want to grill you about what are you actually patenting, you're great. But a lot of companies don't care. They're just like, oh, patent pending, very professional. Oh, I, I like this product. I like this sell sheet. Let's let's talk, you know. So um, upscale lures, you can do it. You're not just this little guy. You're the creative person that these people in corporate America aren't. I don't want to beat up everybody in corporate America. There's creative people there, but a lot of people aren't. It squelches creativity. And you're a guy from Lubbock, Texas, and you have creative ideas and, that are more creative than the stuff they're coming up with. So don't ever um, put yourself down or think you don't have something to offer, you have something to offer, your creativity and thinking outside the box that they don't have. And that's enough. You don't need anything more than that. You don't need to be a big company or anything like that. So hopefully that you found that helpful. Um, Suzanne, um, Suzanne, right. Okay, I'll get my deal, my deal to 95% then reach out to you guys. That's not what I'm saying, Suzanne. Um, what I'm saying is when we work with our students, we will get them to 95% the deal and then say, just have a licensing attorney dot the I's and cross the T's because we want to make sure legally they're, they're covered, right? Um, and so people don't typically get to 95% without our help. So if your sell sheet sucks, if you're reaching out to the wrong companies, if you're reaching out to too few companies, you don't know how to file a provisional patent, if you don't know how to make that outreach, how to get in different ways, LinkedIn, email, phone, all those things, um, you won't get to 95%. Um, but, you know, somebody asked earlier today, do I have to be an InventRight student in order to license my product? No. But I just talked about how the hand-holding seems to make all the difference. Because when we first started, we would just share the information. And people praise us how great we were. But people weren't getting deals done. That's when we switched to coaching, and that's when people started doing deals. So, no, Suzanne, I, I've had people tell me that. You guys are welcome to utilize us that way. Go, well, I'll, I'll use InventRight when I get interest. But it's usually the things you're doing, not doing right, that won't get you there. You know, like when I have people all the time, like, well, I'll sign up when I get interest because I don't want to spend the three grand on the coaching, what have you. And I'm like, okay, no problem. But they, I don't get those people coming back to me, which means they didn't get there. You know, so um, but we do a lot to educate, you know, with our YouTube show, with our books, with this live Monday session. You know, I say go for it. What do you have to lose? Some of you guys, you know, it doesn't fit into your budget right now or at all, you know, because maybe maybe you're unemployed or something or between gigs or what have you. So take the information we give you. Do the best you can. Our fans do close deals sometimes. Definitely. And I'm very proud of that. Um Yeah, um, 
you know, uh, Jen just wrote back, uh, USPS, United States Postal Service, open innovation. They accept unsolicited proposals, but it says they cannot contain info not protected by a patent. By patent, I have a PPA. Can I submit? Yes, you can. But like I said earlier, you probably don't want to be submitting to the post office. When you license, if it's something they're going to use in their facilities, they're going to buy that from a vendor. You want to be licensing to the vendor, not to the post office. Okay. But um, and that submission portal isn't probably for inventors. It's probably for vendors. But I don't know that for sure. So, but for the most part, you're going to be licensing to vendors that sell to them, not to them. And that goes for a lot of other situations as, as well. Ventures get confused on that. Um, Spencer says, hey, Andrew, is it harmful to advertise a product idea on Facebook using a concept to concept art to gauge interest? Um, I saw a product for Segway that they don't make advertised on wish good strategy okay i don't know what that means but um no i think it's a terrible idea when you license you want to keep it all private keep it to yourself and you want to privately show it to companies and not considered public disclosure so it doesn't start what's called a one-year on bar rule from ticking so technically you could file a provisional again you won't get the original date you get the new date if you needed to go beyond a year but why do you need to go beyond a year? You're usually going to figure out in a year if the product's going to make sense. Um, but it's a bad, it's a terrible strategy. You're giving people plenty of time to knock you off. It's not going to prove anything. It, they don't care if 100 people liked it on Facebook. They don't care if 100 people bought it on Facebook. That's abysmal numbers to them. They might be selling 50,000 half a million units. So I, I don't think it's a good strategy at all. Um, sometimes people... Very occasionally, this happens very rarely, but sometimes there are students that are like, I'm not getting traction. I want to put it up on Facebook. And I'm like, why? Well, I want them to see that people are liking it. I'm like, that means nothing. They didn't spend any money on it. It means nothing. And even if you sold 100 units, they'll go, uh, you sold 100 units? Wow. And that's not going to impress them because they're selling 100,000 units. You know, so um, no, you don't need to prove there's a market by putting it on Facebook and doing things like that. And I, I think it's a, a bad idea. Um, and I think uh, Kickstarter is even a worse idea um, as well. And I didn't used to feel that way, but I feel very strongly about that now. There's people that go on Kickstarter and somebody's knocked them off and selling it on Amazon before they're even done with their Kickstarter campaign. It's terrible. So you privately show it for license to companies. I haven't had a single one of our students get knocked off that way in 20 years. But these are the big companies, you know. Um, so uh, Alex says, don't you think it's only best to submit to companies that give you that give your direct replies on your emails? I don't know what you mean by that, Alex. I mean, uh, I think what <clears throat> they get busy sometimes. So <clears throat> I'm sorry, something caught in my throat. So sometimes you're you're submitting to a bunch of companies, and they the bunch won't reply to your email. You'll send a second, a third, a fourth, and the fifth time they reply. So it doesn't mean that they're a bad company. These are marketing managers that are inundated with emails and things to do. And, and sometimes you just need to hit them up again. Maybe if they're not responding to, I've seen this happen so many times, they're not responding to emails at all. But then you go on LinkedIn, they respond within hours. Or you call and it's immediate or vice versa. You need to use all your different techniques. So if you're upset that a company or two or all the companies you emailed didn't respond, that's not anything that to be upset about, that's normal. Um, now, they might not have responded because your sell sheet was sucked. I mean, I saw one just the other day. It was terrible. Nobody should ever be sending that sell sheet. Maybe they don't respond because they don't think you're professional. Maybe you've sent a long rambling email. There's a lot of reasons why they don't respond. Maybe they're just freaking busy and they got a million other things going on. And you need to send it to them more than once. You know, so, um, you know, but yeah, it's it's nice when they respond directly via email, but they don't always do that. Uh uh, Beth said, thank you so much, Andrew. InventRight program is amazing. And you gave us ooh, four exclamation marks. Is that three or four? I can't tell. I think it's three. Um, 
Tommy said, thank you, Andrew. A couple exclamation marks. Um, uh, Daniel Faults. Uh, are times changing when it comes to inventors and company relations? Um, things are always changing. But the, the changes that I've observed over the last 20 years of us doing InventRight is that more and more companies are open to outside ideas than ever before. When Steve and I started 20 years ago, we were way ahead of our time. It's, it's gone up dramatically. Now it's uncommon to find it's the exception. It's, I'm not saying it's uncommon. It's the exception, not the norm, to find companies that aren't open to receiving ideas from the outside. There's always going to be a percentage of them in most industries that say no, but most of them are open. So um, back to your question, are times changing? Um, so I would say that's great. Um, during COVID, one thing that we've experienced is the market manager is actually more receptive faster than before. Um, I thought that was interesting. I think because they're working from their home offices and paying more attention to their email than they normally do. I, that's the best I can assess as to why that is. I'm not saying they're incredibly like jump through their, they jump through your email to respond because that's not true at all. It's never been true. It will never be true. Um, you know, it's always true to give you guys some perspective. If you reach out to 30 companies, only a percentage will respond the first time. You gotta use a lot of different techniques to get to them. It's just work, it's like sweeping the floor. If you don't get take it personal, it's fine. You don't accept a no until you get a no from them all. Um, Itchy Finger says, thank you, Andrew, you're welcome. Um, so Gemini said, what's the one-year on-bar rule? So one year from the time you publicly disclose your idea, you have a year to get a patent or you're hosed forever. So um, it, it starts the one-year on-bar rule and then you're cornered. And if you privately show it for license, it does not start the one-year on-bar rule. So you're not cornered, you know, with filing a patent and spending all that money. So don't corner yourself. It's not necessary. Posting on Facebook isn't going to get you where you want to go anyway. So don't make a public disclosure. Public disclosure is putting it up on Facebook, selling it a swap meet, any sort of public disclosure, putting it up on YouTube, unlisted where only people with the link you send it to can see it. That's fine. That's not public disclosure. But so that's what the one year on board rule is. Um, yeah, Gemini, what if you have a PPA and go on Kickstarter? I don't recommend it. I think licensing is a much better path. Licensing, it's... It's their money, so you don't need to raise money on Kickstarter. These big companies have unlimited credit lines for products that sell well. It's their workforce. Kickstarter, you don't get a workforce. You don't get sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising, all working for you. And it's, the biggest thing is their existing distribution. So maybe they're in 30,000 stores. So you get the money, the workforce, and the distribution all in one place. You start Kickstarter, okay, you raise you know $20,000 on Kickstarter. Now you got to go off, you got to make this, which is incredibly challenging. Most Kickstarter folks fall flat on their face there. And it takes them years, if, if at all, they ever deliver the product to the 500 people or however many people on Kickstarter that bought it. But now, okay, so now you finally, most people don't get there. You manufacture it and you deliver it to those people. Most people fail, by the way, on that. But let's say you deliver it on time. And now you're a guy or a gal that sold 500 uses on Kickstarter. Who cares? You're back to square one. You know, you're not going to approach potential licensees or even retailers and go, hey, I sold 500 Kickstarter. They'll be like, so what? I don't care. You know, it's not going to impress them. So if you, you still then, if you're not licensing, need to go out and start a company from scratch. You used all your money to fulfill those orders. Now you got to get more money. And now you're starting a company. And now you go to Bed Bath & Beyond, let's say, and they're like, well, what other products you got? No, this is the only one. It's like, yeah. They want to deal with that vendor with five or 10 or 20 products. When you license to that big vendor with five, 10, 20, 80 products, you are them. And then you have their manufacturer's rep constantly in with the buyer for, let's say, Bed Bath & Beyond or whatever store, not only getting it in the store, but keeping it in the store. So I am really not at all big on Kickstarter. I think people are getting knocked off left and right there. It's It's terrible. Um, I think I used to really love it because it's so grassroots. It's like I can put it out there. People will fund it, raise money, and then I can deliver it to them. It's so cool, but it absolutely sucks. I wouldn't recommend anybody do it now, nobody. Um, it's, it's a mess. It's an absolute mess. Um, and if you do want to venture and don't want to license and want to make it and sell it yourself, 
I don't believe that's a good path to go. Um, and don't the PPA will not protect you on there. You know, big companies, that's a lot of liability, right? These big companies, you know, they don't want the liability ripping off the little guy, but some random ass, part of my language, asshole that goes on Kickstarter and knocks you off and then starts selling on Amazon, they're not that same kind of big company that you would try to license to. There are people that do just that, knock people off and then just copy it and see that there's a market and they suck. Um, how do I re- how do I really feel? Uh, <laughs> oh, well, Sam wrote at what at what point should I consider signing up for coaching? Also, how many ideas should I have before signing up? I always say it like this: I you you have to have the one idea that you really want to work on next, or you're like, hey, I'm open to working on any of these eight. So I don't think you have to have other ideas to sign up with us, but here's my feeling. You have to want to come up with more because what's the point in us working with you with this one project or maybe two, you get that real life experience. Now you know how to do this. You feel confident. And now you're never going to work on another invention in your life again. You're getting less out of our coaching and mentoring when you do that. So I always tell people, you don't have to have another invention now. If you have the intent to come up with another one, that's good enough for me because then you're going to be able to use these skills that you learned with project number one and you're going to apply it to these other projects you're going to work on. So you don't have to have them now. A a huge percentage of folks that do come on board with us, they want to work on this one idea. I said, you have others? Oh yeah, I got five others. I've been up ideas forever. Or, you know, I don't really have one at mind, but I've come up with stuff all the time. And so I would say that's the right time when you have one that you want to work on, Sam, and then you have others that you want to work on in the future. So you're like, oh, yeah, I want to learn this skill so I can keep working on those others. And they're going to give me, empower me with those skills. So as long as you have one idea you want to jump in and work on, um, and we don't limit people to one project. If you're really motivated, you can work on two projects during the half of your coaching as well. Um, Anthony has a really interesting question. Then we're going to call it a night. Um, but I like his question so much. I'm going to answer it. Is it okay to invent my own unique product or is it better to look at a company line and work off that? Um, Most inventors randomly come up with ideas and you don't even know how you came up with it. Don't remember. It just came to you one day or most inventors when I talk to them, they don't know their process. The ultimate process is to, and that's fine. If it works, it works. But the ultimate is to study um, a micro category, like all the wine bottle openers, all the barbecue spatulas, all the doorstops. And that's a micro category, like studying all barbecue accessories, overwhelming, but you can study all the uh, uh, barbecue tongs, and you could do that probably in four or five hours, become an expert at barbecue tongs, okay? All the different features, benefits, price points. And so, and if you did that, you had no invention yet. You're like, I'm an expert now. I spent five hours studying barbecue tongs, damn it. And now I notice there's these over here and these over here. These have this benefit and they range from this. You're an expert, absolute expert at barbecue tongs. And now you go, okay, what am I going to invent? Maybe you come back another session, you look at all the products you bookmark, you look at your notes, and then you invent with the marketplace in mind. That is the ultimate and will always be the best way to invent. So if you guys aren't doing the now, which vast majority of inventors, very few inventors are doing that, you all should be doing that. So take take my advice, get onto Google Images, the best place to study a microcategory. So as a wine bottle opener, you get on, you study wine bottle openers on Google Images and you look at all the products and then you come up with something because then you're not going to reinvent something that already exists. You know the market and you're inventing with the marketplace in mind. It makes you smarter. Um, and you've got all this visual stimulation with all these other products. Like it makes it so easy to invent. I guarantee you, 95% of you could come up with ideas like that really easily by doing that. So I highly encourage you to do that. Um, so Anthony, thank you for asking that question. I love that question. Um, so I want to remind everybody to take care, keep inventing. And I always like to say this at the end of every session, coming up with ideas for most of you is part of who you are. And so there's starts to become a disconnect when you don't, enable who you are, which is learning the business side of licensing, reaching out to companies and doing this, you know, 
it starts to become less and less fun brainstorming up ideas because you come up with idea after idea, maybe even see ideas you came up with come out in the market. You go, I could have done something with that. And so there has to be a point at which you, you don't stop coming up with ideas, but you go, I'm going to learn the hard part because the easy part for most of you is coming up with ideas. That was easy. Then the hard part is the business side of stuff. And that's where we come in. We teach you the business side of things. There's so many brilliant inventors out there that don't understand the business side of licensing, and that's sad. And that's why we really want to um, educate our inventor community, the inventor community, using our YouTube show, using our books, using this live Monday Q&A. Um, and, of course, our coaching and our mentoring is the ultimate. But do whatever we can to empower you guys. Whether you're going to do it on your own or do it with us, you got to do it as part of who you are. And don't be afraid and paranoid everybody's going to rip you off. It's few and far between. Most inventors rip themselves off out of their own fear. Do not rip yourself off out of your own fear. Move forward with your inventions. I'm not saying if you're completely clueless and completely green and completely new, you have to get your bearings first. You will not be comfortable unless you do. But you do need to get your bearings, and you do need some sort of help. All right. So remind everybody to take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you guys next time. Bye.